When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a bi-weekly podcast delivering a legit, seriously researched, hard-hitting survey of American history through entertaining stories. If you'd like to support HTDS or enjoy some perks, like ad-free early episodes for $2 a month, please consider giving at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. To keep up with HTDS news, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Welcome to History That Doesn't Suck. I'm your professor, Greg Jackson, and I'd like to tell you a story. It is the rape of a virgin territory, compelling it to hateful embrace of slavery. Yes, sir, when the whole world, Christian and Turk, is rising up to condemn this wrong and to make it a hissing to the nations, here in our republic, force, I, sir, force, has been openly employed in compelling Kansas to this pollution and all for the sake of political power. Charles Sumner's sharp words rattle friend and foe alike in the semicircle-shaped Senate chambers. As you can see, the Massachusetts senator with flowing brown hair and short but thick mutton chops is here to fight. With his words, that is, he isn't one for physical combat. The fiery abolitionist Republican is livid about the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which has sparked a full-on small-scale civil war over slavery in the newly organized territory of Kansas. So in this five-hour-long speech delivered over the course of two days, the senator comes out swinging, again, just verbally, at, quote, that slave oligarchy which now controls the republic close quote, as well as at three senators that came at him during the debates over the Kansas-Nebraska Act two years back. All Democrats, these three are Virginia's James Mason, Illinois' Stephen Douglas, and South Carolina's Andrew Butler. Allow me to give you a taste of what Charles has to say about these senatorial colleagues of his. While speaking of James, Charles throws some founding father shade. I quote, The senator from Virginia, Mr. Mason, who, as the author of the Fugitive Slave Bill, has associated himself with a special act of inhumanity and tyranny, he holds the commission of Virginia. But he does not represent that early Virginia so dear to our hearts, which gave us the pen of Jefferson, by which the equality of men was declared, and the sword of Washington, by which independence was secured. But he represents that other Virginia, from which Washington and Jefferson now avert their faces, where human beings are bred as cattle. Close quote. Whew, talk about bringing the heat. And Charles just keeps it up. With a solid 17th century literary reference, he compares Stephen Douglas to fictional Don Quixote's sidekick, Sancho Panza. And on whom does Charles bestow the honor of being Don Quixote? That would be our last of the trio, Andrew Butler. Running with the image of this fictional windmill warrior, Charles says, 
The senator from South Carolina has read many books on chivalry and believes himself a chivalrous knight. Of course, he has chosen a mistress to whom he has made his vows, and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him. Though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot of slavery. Close quote. Damn. I mean, just damn. Now, before we go on, I need to fill you in on congressional culture at this point. The year's 1856, and things have gotten so tense between the North and the South over the issue of slavery that congressmen now head to the legislative chambers armed. You know, just in case they need to do battle with each other. Could you imagine your 21st century senator or congressional rep walking around Capitol Hill packing heat? Or maybe a switchblade or a club? Because that's how things work in 1856. Only last year, Massachusetts Rep. Henry Wilson foretold that, quote, the next Congress will be the most violent one in our history, close quote. Crazier yet, he also said, to quote him again, if violence and bloodshed come, let us not falter, but do our duty, even if we fall upon the floors of Congress, close quote. Yeah, not only did he acknowledge the violence, he basically says he's ready to throw down. Good God. No wonder the British foreign minister is claiming the U.S. House of Representatives is a dangerous place no foreign minister should even visit. Congress is turning into Fight Club. And that brings us to May 22, 1856. It's two days after Charles finished his verbal takedown on slavery in Kansas and Senators James Mason, Stephen Douglas, and Andrew Butler. Charles is at his desk in the Senate chambers, peacefully preparing copies of his 112-page speech for mass mailing when Senator Butler's fellow South Carolinian and cousin, Representative Preston Brooks, walks in. The representative notices women in the room. Well, given what this Southern gentleman plans to do, having ladies in the room will not do. He sits and waits. Finally, only one remains. Oh, but he's tired of waiting, though. Can't you manage to get her out? Preston asks the Senate Secretary, Colonel Nicholson. No, that would be ungallant. Besides, she is very pretty. The colonel, not realizing something nefarious is about to go down, jokingly replies. Yes, she is pretty, but I wish she would go. Preston retorts. Finally, the woman exits the Senate chamber and Preston seizes his moment. He briskly approaches Charles's desk, then, standing before him, says, Mr. Sumner, I read your speech with care and as much impartiality as was possible, and I felt it was my duty to tell you that you have libeled my state and slandered my relative, who is aged and absent, and I am come to punish you for it. With that pronouncement made, Preston immediately raises his gold-handled cane and strikes Charles right on the head. Repeatedly. Relentlessly. Seated at a desk, bolted to the floor, the unsuspecting, stunned senator can't even flee. Through desperate thrashing, Charles somehow breaks the bolted desk clean off the Senate floor. He now stumbles and crashes into the narrow aisle with Preston and his cane right on top of him. Don't kill him, 
elderly Kentucky senator, John Crittenden, calls out as he moves towards them. Let them alone, God damn you, calls out Lawrence Keat, Preston's fellow South Carolina congressman, as he raises his walking cane menacingly towards the aged senator. Preston continues to beat the bloodied Bostonian until his cane breaks. Within the space of a mere minute, Preston struck the senator some 30 times. I could not believe that such a thing was possible. Charles ekes out before losing consciousness. I guess you wouldn't believe such a thing is possible if, like Charles, you're not one for fighting. Colleagues carry the bruised, broken, blood-gushing, brain-swelling senator to a sofa as Preston and his posse saunter out of the Senate chambers. Try not to worry too much. We'll find out what happens to Charles, I promise. First, though, we have to set up the situation that led to his speech. In other words, I need to tell you about Bleeding Kansas. The path to this mini-civil war in the center of the United States includes electing Franklin Pierce as president, the Whig Party's death over the Kansas-Nebraska Act, meeting the influential legislator Stephen Douglas, and seeing the formation of new territories while focusing on Kansas in particular. Because it's here that things get out of hand fast. Determined pro-slavery Missouri quote-unquote border ruffians commit large-scale voter fraud and attack anti-slavery settlers in Kansas. With this background, we can circle back to the barely-breathing Bostonian Charles Sumner. Following that, though, the violence continues in Kansas as abolitionist John Brown decides to fight back. But does that make him a righteous Christian soldier? Or simply a murderer responsible for the Potawatomi Creek Massacre? And can the next U.S. president, James Buchanan, team up with the Supreme Court to stop Kansas's bleeding through a ruling on the freedom or enslavement of the Dred Scott family? We'll find out. It's a full episode as always. So, let's head back a few years to 1852 and elect another one-term president. Rewind. As the election cycle of 1852 gears up, one thing is clear. The Whig Party is dying. This party that came into being to fight King Andrew I, you remember that from episode 29, right? Faces some serious infighting in the early 1850s. The Whigs are hemorrhaging members as two new third-party options come into play. One you already know, which is the anti-slavery Free Soil Party we heard about back in episode 39. The other is an up-and-coming anti-immigrant party simply called the American Party, a.k.a. the Know-Nothings, a name derived from their secret society origins. Seriously, it's like someone shouted fire in the middle of a Whig convention and its members are bolting for the exits. Here's the thing. Most Southern Whigs can't comfortably stay in a party that continually fights to contain or even strangle slavery. So they abandoned the Whigs like rats jumping off a sinking ship and joined the Democrats. Up north, the Free Soil Party, whose myopic platform is keeping slavery out of the territories, refuses to get back in bed with the Whigs. And, crazy as this sounds, slavery is not the only divisive issue creating deep fissures in the northern Whig party base. A strong anti-immigrant nativist movement is gaining steam in northern states due to an influx of poor, unskilled, non-English-speaking, Catholic, European immigrants coming to the U.S. 
the immigration rate balloons. In the early 1840s, about 50,000 people a year immigrated to the United States. By 1852, that number has skyrocketed to around 400,000. Fear-based arguments that immigrants will take jobs and let their Catholic faith's hierarchical trust in a pope erode American democracy drive many Whigs into the waiting arms of the Know-Nothing Party. While the Whigs try to plug the plethora of holes in their boat, Democrats also lose a small portion of their members to the Free Soil and Know-Nothing Parties. But even with a dip in numbers, Dems managed to keep a solid, if somewhat smaller, base in the North. Case in point, the Democratic Party nominates a Northerner and New Hampshire native named Franklin Pierce for president in 1852. The guy has an impressive political resume, having served in the state legislature, as a senator, and as an officer in the Mexican-American War. While serving his country, he even rubbed shoulders with A-list Southerners like Jefferson Davis and Pierre Beauregard. So yeah, it's safe to say that the Democrats are still doing okay at this point in the North and South. With this strong base in both sections of the country, Franklin handily wins the 1852 presidential race against General Winfield Scott. Ah, uh, I assume you remember Winfield from the Mexican-American War episodes. Well, the breaking, splintering Whig party throws a Hail Mary by running yet another war hero. After all, if old Zachary Taylor and William Henry Harrison can win, they're thinking that maybe Winfield, old fuss and feather Scott can too. But between a united Democratic Party, a strong economy, and Winfield's own vanity and pomposity, the Whig hero doesn't make much headway in the campaign. Franklin sweeps the election, winning well over 50% of the popular vote and taking home 250,000 more votes than Winfield. Franklin Pierce takes the oath of office in March 1853, but this powerful, well-connected New Englander with untamable curly hair and a serious affinity for whiskey isn't the only powerhouse in Washington right now. The leader of the Northern Democratic Senators, Stephen A. Douglas, has some serious star power of his own. And if you haven't heard of Stephen Douglas, ahem, of the Lincoln-Douglas debates fame, well, you're going to in this and a few episodes to come. So let's get to know this guy a bit. Born in Vermont in 1813, Stephen lost his dad when he was only two months old. At 20, the restless, ready-for-a-change young man moved to Illinois to become a lawyer. He settled in Jacksonville, Illinois, a frontier town about 230 miles southwest of Chicago. Stephen fit right in on the frontier and wrote to his mom, quote, I have become a Western man, have imbibed Western feelings, principles, and interests, and have selected Illinois as the favorite place of my adoption without any desire of returning to the land of my fathers except as a visitor. Close quote. Not content with lawyering, Stephen entered state politics soon after opening a law practice in Jacksonville. His frank manners and lack of Yankee snobbishness made him popular in Illinois, and his ambition, self-confidence, and short stature soon earned him the nickname Little Giant. Stephen claims that he's five foot four, but he's probably padding his stats more brazenly than an NBA player. However, Little Giant has broad shoulders and is barrel-chested, so he's no little jemmy. Only 10 years after coming to Illinois, Stephen got elected to Congress. Three years later, in 1846, he became a senator. Frankly, popular and productive Stephen might have become a senator sooner, but he had to wait until he turned 30. 
Entering Congress in the 1840s, Stephen was involved in some way in every major piece of American expansion legislation from Texas annexation onward and ends up chairing the Senate Committee on Territories. He's passionate about Western expansion and writes to a colleague, quote, the tide of emigration and civilization must be permitted to roll onward, close quote. But Stephen does have a flaw. He's not a visionary. He borrows and adapts the ideas of others, which makes him a pro when it comes to compromising. You probably remember his skill at getting the Compromise of 1850 through Congress back in episode 39. But his nation-building goals make him see compromise as a means to a manifest destiny end. He remains blind to the moral and ethical issues within those compromises. Like the divisive, persistent, seemingly unresolvable problems of slavery and slavery expansion, these conflicts may need a more deft hand than pragmatic Stephen can offer. So that's Stephen. And we won't get to his famous debates with lanky, log-cabin-dwelling Abe today, but now you have a feel for who this guy is. And as he enters his 10th year in Congress and President Pierce begins his tenure in the White House, both men find themselves staring down the mess that is slavery in the Western territories because the Compromise of 1850 is proving to suck at its job. It really just dealt with slavery in the territories the U.S. gained in the Mexican-American War. Now settlers are clamoring to organize more territory in the Louisiana Purchase lands north and west of Missouri. And that puts the spotlight on Stephen. See, as I mentioned, Stephen is the chairman of the Senate Committee on Territories, so he now attempts to handle the situation by introducing the Nebraska Act in December 1853. Now, Stephen calls the bill sectionally neutral because it embraces the idea of popular sovereignty. I'll remind you really quick that popular sovereignty means territorial settlers decide for themselves whether or not to have slavery, not Congress. Anyway, Stephen hopes to promote the idea of popular sovereignty in the Nebraska Territory, which includes pieces of the future states of Kansas, Nebraska, both Dakotas, Montana, and Wyoming, and in so doing, sidestep the Missouri Compromise Line that prohibits slavery north of Parallel 3630 in the Louisiana Purchase. But loudmouth Missouri Senator Davy Atchison won't let Stephen off the hook that easily. The tall, Roman-nosed, uncouth Davy rails against Stephen's territory organizing bill, correctly pointing out that settlers can't possibly decide on slavery themselves when a 30-year-old line already decided for them. The pro-slavery frontiersman turned senator gets several other Southern senators to back his demand that Stephen revise the bill to abolish the Missouri Compromise Line and truly allow popular sovereignty to rule in the Nebraska Territory. Compromise-minded Stephen goes along with their demands and revises his bill. This new bill, which still lists Stephen as the main author, but has Southern senators' fingerprints all over it, becomes known as the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. It creates two new territories, you guessed it, Kansas and Nebraska, and replaces the Missouri Compromise Line with the Compromise of 1850 principle of popular sovereignty in all U.S. territories. The bill reads, quote, All questions pertaining to slavery in the territories and in the new states to be formed are to be left to the decision of the people residing therein through their appropriate representatives. Close quote. 
In January 1854, Stephen, Davy, and a few other Southern senators take this new Nebraska-Kansas bill to the president. They want to have the White House's backing before pushing this thing through Congress. These guys aren't about to repeat Henry Clay's Compromise of 1850 mistakes. As President Pierce reads over the Kansas-Nebraska bill, he doesn't like the explicit language that basically repeals the Missouri Compromise, but he can't afford to make enemies in the Senate right now. See, Franklin has his eye on an international prize. The president recently sent U.S. Ambassador James Gadsden to Mexico to make a deal with our old one-legged friend and current Mexican president, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. James is offering El Presidente Santa Ana 10 million in cash for a small strip of land known as the Mesilla Valley in modern-day southern Arizona. And Franklin really wants to steal the work out. That valley would be the perfect place to run a leg of a potentially wildly lucrative southern transcontinental rail line. Once Ambassador Gadsden works out the treaty, the president needs the Senate to ratify it without thinking twice. So, in an I'll-scratch-your-back-you-scratch-mine move, the president capitulates to the powerful senators on the territorial slavery issue, hoping to cash in on the favor later. Okay, so that was step one. Now all Stephen has to do is sell a potentially slavery-expanding bill to anti-slavery northerners. Justifying this new bill, probably to himself as much as to his northern Democrat associates, Stephen argues that by abolishing that pesky 3630 Missouri Compromise line, the Kansas-Nebraska bill will restore sovereignty to the people living in the territory. And they may not choose to allow slavery in Kansas. But Stephen knows that's a big maybe. He's pretty sure that the bill will cause, quote, a hell of a storm, close quote. But the bill doesn't kick up much dust in the Senate and passes on to the House on March 4, 1854. However, the House drags its feet. They put it at the bottom of their to-do list, literally, and don't vote on the bill until May. Though some northern reps do their best to stall the bill, the official vote takes place on May 22, 1854. The revised bill, which more closely fits with the demands of pro-slavery southerners than Stephen's original legislation, passes in a 113 to 100 vote. President Pierce signs the bill as promised on May 30th, but confesses to being more anxiety-ridden than he's ever been since the 1852 death of his son. The Senate also ratifies the Treaty of Messiah on April 25, 1854, giving the Messiah Valley, aka the Gadsden Purchase, to the United States. But the Gadsden Purchase and its promise of a southern railroad ends up looking like just one more attempt by southern slave owners to expand slavery into the developing American West. That's not what the president was going for back in January when he traded favors with the Senate to get the treaty ratified. And the newly enacted Kansas-Nebraska bill only brings the fight to establish or abolish slavery in the territories to the surface. Here comes the storm that Stephen Douglas predicted. An immediate casualty is the Whigs. I mean, yes, the party was hurting before, sure, but the Kansas-Nebraska Act's passage is one in the head, two in the chest, and a nail in the coffin for it. The emerging Republican Party gathers up the Whigs' splintered remains, including those who'd already been lost to third parties, like the Know-Nothings and the Free Soilers. Add a few Northern Dems to sweeten the pot, and the Republicans materialize almost overnight as a robust, 
though mostly northern and western, anti-slavery party. I guess Stephen called it, huh? This is indeed a hell of a storm. And it's moving west. Yeah, it's time to actually apply the popular sovereignty idea of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Some northerners are ready for the rubber, or wagon wheel, to meet the road. Anti-slavery New York Senator William Seward recognizes that the ballots cast by Kansas settlers will now decide the slavery issue out west. He knows that the more heavily populated north can send droves of voters to the new territory. So in a move that would make Ralphie from the cult classic movie A Christmas Story Proud, confident William basically triple-dog dares the south to a figurative foot race to Kansas. Quote, Come on then, gentlemen of the slave states. Since there is no escaping your challenge, I accept it in behalf of the cause of freedom. We will engage in competition for the virgin soil of Kansas, and God give the victory to the side which is stronger in number as it is in right. Close quote. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, oh, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. HTDS is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes it's good to get things off your chest. I'm not talking about John Adams on the floor of the Continental Congress shouting, the injustice of England has driven us to arms. Well, not necessarily. No, beyond King George's taxation policies, I'm talking about the different stressors we all carry around, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's not just for those who've experienced trauma. Though, of course, therapy is very important in those circumstances. But therapy can also help with learning positive coping skills for different stresses we sometimes face throughout our lives. If you think you could use a little help, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com htds today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash H-T-D-S. William Seward's whole God give the victory to the side which is stronger in the Kansas slavery throwdown sounds good, but the senator isn't appreciating how dirty his opponents are willing to play. Some see it as the fight for the future of the United States. Democrat and Senator Davy Atchison says that, quote, The game must be played boldly. If we win, we carry slavery to the Pacific Ocean. If we fail, we lose Missouri, Arkansas, Texas, and all the territories. Close quote. Now, I'll point out that Missouri is already a slave state and has been since the Compromise of 1820. But Missourians, like the senator here, 
fear that if their state is entirely surrounded by free states on its northwest and east sides, it too will become a free state in time. So with that disposition, he's ready to play dirty. Remember when the Missourians drove the Mormons out of the state back in episode 32? Well, Davy plans to draw on that vigilante expertise. The Missouri senator boasts of this to U.S. War Secretary Jefferson Davis, quote, We are organizing. We will be compelled to shoot, burn, and hang, but the thing will soon be over. We intend to Mormonize the abolitionists. Close quote. Damn. All right, let's see this play out. Davy starts his less-than-legal scuffle with voter fraud in November 1854 when the Kansas Territory goes to elect its House representative for Congress. Not wanting to leave any chance that the election results in an anti-slavery rep, he gets Missourians to cross the state line and vote in Kansas Territory's election. Though next to impossible to pull off in the modern era, That would be like 21st century Americans getting in their cars on election day and driving to another state to vote. Talk about illegal. By the way, this isn't just a little nudge toward the pro-slavery candidate. According to next year's census, Kansas will have just under 3,000 legal voters in March 1855. Meanwhile, these Missourians, whom Horace Greeley and other newspapermen dub, quote, border ruffians, close quote, cast, ready for this, over 1,700 illegal votes in November 1854. Man, talk about stacking the deck. The border ruffians only up their game when Kansas holds elections for its territorial legislature in the spring of 1855. Enter every election district in Kansas and vote at point of bowie knife or revolver, a border ruffian instructs his men. Meanwhile, Davy Acheson descends from that august body that is the U.S. Senate to personally lead border ruffians into the Kansas Territory. Never shy about boasting of his ability to use violence to manipulate votes and demographics, Davy proclaims, quote, There are 1,100 men coming over from Platte County to vote. And if that ain't enough, we can send 5,000 enough to kill every goddamned abolitionist in the territory. Close quote. Oh, don't worry. He doesn't actually get 5,000 border ruffians. No, no. Only 4,908. Kansas territorial governor Andrew Reeder is sickened at this. A Pennsylvanian and a Democrat, he wasn't anti-slavery when he came to Kansas, but the behavior of these Missourians is changing his views quickly. The man believes in duly elected government, so Andrew orders one-third of voting districts to redo their elections, and sure enough, they elect free soilers. But the slavery crowd doesn't care. They won't acknowledge this new election. Obviously, the American Republic, which stands for duly elected government, has to reject this election, right? The governor turns to the president of these distressed states, Franklin Pierce. But Davy's got the president in his pocket. He convinces Franklin that Republican newspapers are exaggerating, and it's an immigrant aid company helping recent immigrants in Kansas that's making problems, not Missourians. Franklin not only upholds the election, he kicks Andrew to the curb and brings in a new territorial governor who won't make a fuss. The pro-slavery government of Kansas stands. 
moving to cement its power, this bogus legislature makes helping slaves escape a crime punishable by death. Even speaking against slavery can result in a fine and jail time. Good grief. But Kansas's free soilers don't stand down. Things get worse in November 1855 when pro-slavery settler Franklin Coleman shoots and kills free soiler Charles Dow. Their dispute was over land, but politics quickly came into play, launching the so-called Wakarusa War. Organized as a Kansas militia, a 1,500-strong band of Missourians now moves on Lawrence, Kansas, where a thousand free soilers await them with rifles and howitzers. Thankfully, our new lackey governor recognizes his militia isn't exactly Kansan and intercedes. This quasi-war supposedly ends the following month without a real battle, but that's not entirely true. It's more like a winter armistice. Let's fast forward to spring 1856. There are two governments in the Kansas Territory, a pro-slavery government in the city of Lecompton and a free soiler government in Topeka, both insisting it alone is legitimate. Of course, despite the voter fraud, the current legitimate one in the eyes of the president is the pro-slavery government. Thanks again for standing up for the electoral process, Franklin. Anyhow, with the winter's cold gone, Missourians, who have the law on their side, remember, because it's illegal to speak against slavery in Kansas, more or less pick up where they left off late last year. On May 21st, 1856, a government-sanctioned 800-strong group of Missourians armed with cannons no less, descends upon the Free Soiler stronghold of Lawrence, Kansas. Given the law, the residents know better than to even put up a fight. The Missourians raise the city's hotel, destroy its newspapers, and otherwise sack the town, including the Free Soiler governor's home. And as this violence rips through the center of the United States, Congress is at an impasse. Democrats in control of the Senate are trying to pass a bill admitting Kansas to the Union as a slave state. But they can't because Republicans control the House, and they not only refuse to sign off, they're trying to pass a bill that will admit Kansas as a free state. Oh, and seeing as we're talking about Congress, I'll go ahead and remind you, this is about the time Charles Sumner makes his Crimes Against Kansas speech that opened this episode. He delivers it on May 19th and 20th. 1856, which were the days before the sacking of Lawrence. Seeing the voter fraud and violence in Kansas, and understanding that the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act is what unleashed this hell in the first place, perhaps you better understand why Charles gave this speech in which he referred to the border ruffians from Missouri as, and I quote, hirelings picked from the drunken spew and vomit of an uneasy civilization. Close quote. You probably also see why he ripped on Senators Mason, Douglas, and Butler for their role in its creation. It was two days after this speech, so May 22nd, 1856, that Representative Preston Brooks bashed Charles's head in. The caning of Sumner, as this grotesque assault by one U.S. legislator upon another has come to be known, has a divisive impact on the nation. I know, big shocker. Thousands of Northerners register as Republicans after this. William Cullen Bryant captures the growing concern for freedom of speech in the face of slavery as he asks in the New York Evening Post, quote, We must speak with bated breath in the presence of our Southern masters? Are we to be chastised as they chastise their slaves? 
Close quote. Meanwhile, Preston becomes a hero in the South as admirers send him dozens of new canes to replace the one he broke on Charles's head. They often bear an inscription such as, quote, hit him again, close quote. The House votes on expelling him, but his Southern colleagues prevent Preston from receiving the required two-thirds to actually kick him out. No matter, he resigns only to win re-election. His total penalty for almost killing a literally seated U.S. senator is a $300 fine. As for Charles, he does survive, surprisingly enough, but it will take years for him to recover physically, emotionally, and psychologically. But the violence in Kansas doesn't remain a one-way thing. Incensed over the sacking of Lawrence, one free state fighter decides free soilers must, quote, fight fire with fire, close quote. And since he'll be appearing in some future episodes, let's get to know this man whom Frederick Douglass will later describe as the one to, quote, at least begin the war that ended slavery, close quote. Okay, a little hyperbolic, Frederick, but we get what you're going for, though it's far more complimentary than others feel about this complicated, controversial man. Ladies and gents, I give you John Brown. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Born in 1800 to a household that believed in abolitionism some three decades before it became a legit movement, John's hated slavery since childhood. But his strong feelings weren't just taught to him. He came to his own personal conviction while handling a cattle drive from his Ohio home up to Michigan as a 12-year-old. Yeah, 12. And I know what you're thinking. Lazy kid. I mean, in neighboring Indiana, Ron Swanson of Parks and Rec fame worked at both a sheet metal factory and a tannery by 11, but I digress. The point is, 12-year-old John was traveling by his lonesome and lodged with a family that owned a slave boy about his age. John found him to be intelligent, kind, thoughtful, yet the family was cruel to him. The man of the house would beat this child with an iron shovel. As John puts it, this caused him, quote, to reflect on the wretched, hopeless condition of fatherless and motherless slave children, close quote. In time, this memory led John, quote, to declare or swear eternal war with slavery, close quote. 
The staunch abolitionist moved across several states in adulthood and wasn't the best businessman by any means, but everywhere he went, he did indeed wage war with slavery. With dark, thick hair and tan skin, John opened his home and small businesses as way stations on the Underground Railroad, which he called the Subterranean Passway. While farming in Pennsylvania from 1825 to 1835, he helped an estimated 2,500 slaves escape. And in 1850, John responded to the Fugitive Slave Act by converting his Springfield, Massachusetts wool storage warehouse into yet another Underground Railroad station. Though John worked hard to liberate slaves, he became more and more frustrated with the nonviolent approach of national abolitionist movements. I mean, his hairline refused to recede with age, so why should the rest of him back down from a fight? The determined man wanted action, not political compromises that led to what he saw as wicked laws, like the Fugitive Slave and Kansas-Nebraska Acts. And John's Christian faith-backed abolitionist actions followed the principle that Christian soldiers must combat sins, like slavery. But he hasn't actually been violent. Yet. That changes in 1856. With four of his sons, a daughter, and a son-in-law already in Kansas, John sees an opportunity to effect real change. He arrives in Kansas early that year and helps to build the ineffective, unused defense work at Lawrence, Kansas. It's after that bald and blatant attack on free staters and abolitionists in this city that John snaps. He goes from a committed abolitionist to a violent Christian soldier and his actions radically reshape the Kansas Free State Movement. Nearing midnight on May 24th, John, four of his sons, his son-in-law, and a like-minded friend walk up to a small cabin near the Potawatomi Creek. The two dogs in the yard bark loudly, but one of the men shoots a dog and its scared mate runs off. John then knocks on the cabin door of James Doyle and calls out that he needs directions to a nearby homestead. As James opens the door to help, the armed group forces their way into the cabin. Using their broadswords, yes, broadswords, how did they even get four-foot-long crusade-style double-edged blades to Kansas in the first place? Anyway, using their broadswords, the men take James and his two oldest sons, 22-year-old William and 20-year-old Drury, as prisoners. Doyle matron Mahala tearfully begs the intruders to spare her next son, 16-year-old John. The men relent and drag only the three oldest Doyle men into the night. Mahala, John, and the three youngest Doyle children crouch together in the cabin, sobbing, as Mahala hears two shots, moans, and, quote, wild whoops, close quote, just outside their home. Yeah, this northern army, as they call themselves, has no intention of taking prisoners. They murder the Doyle men and move on down the road. Their next target is the nearby Wilkinson cabin. Louisa Wilkinson wakes up to the distant sound of a dog barking. I can't tell you for sure, but it's probably the Doyle's terrified hound. She worriedly wakes her husband, Alan. He dismisses Louisa's fears and goes back to sleep until there's a knock at the door. Alan gets up and talks warily to the men from behind his door. Louisa overhears them ask for directions to the next cabin. She also hears the men ask Tennessee native Alan if he is a, quote, northern armist, close quote. In other words, they are asking if he opposes the Free Soil Party. When Alan answers yes, the men shout something through the door that sounds like, quote, 
open this damn door or we'll open it for you. Close quote. Despite Louise's terrified objections, Alan unbolts the door. Four rough and tumble men shove their way into the small one-room cabin. They grab hold of Alan. Louisa, sick with the measles, begs the men to leave her husband alone, but out for blood and justice, John Brown refuses. After leaving a sobbing Louisa in her sickbed, the vigilantes drag Alan into the brush. One of the men swings his sword at the prisoner's neck, leaving two gaping slashes across his throat. Another man leaves gashes in Alan's head and ribs. The murderers, now having killed four men with their guns and broadswords, leave Alan to bleed to death and head to James Harris's cabin. James lets the dirty, scraggly men into his cabin. I know, it's the middle of the night and James is just opening his door and letting a bunch of armed men into his house. What is this guy thinking? Well, I can't read his mind, but I can tell you that he recognizes the straight mouth and stern face of old man Brown and his son, Owen, among the group. So at least he's not opening the door to strangers? Does that make it better? Probably not. Anyway, at the Harris cabin, the Northern Army changes up their tactics. Instead of asking for directions, they ask for a man named Henry Dutch Sherman. See, there are several people staying at the Harris homestead, but John Brown and his crew only want Dutch. Fortunately for that guy, he's not sleeping at the Harris cabin tonight. Determined to find Dutch, a few of the vigilantes interrogate the men individually out in the yard, while the rest stay in the cabin as guards. One by one, each of the men returns safely. But when William Sherman, who happens to be Dutch's brother, goes out for questioning, the now wide-awake people in the Harris cabin hear a shot. The Northern Army guards quickly leave the cabin and William never returns. At dawn, the survivors find the Northern Army's victims. A few hundred yards from his house, young John Doyle discovers the mutilated bodies of his brothers and dad. His father, James, has taken a ball through his forehead and has a large stab wound in the chest. As for his older brothers, William has a knife wound on one side and his head is cut nearly in two while Drury's head and chest are slashed open and his hands and arms are severed. Best guess is that Drury was holding up his hands in a futile attempt to shield himself as the broadsword fell on him. Down the road, Louisa's neighbors find Alan, but they won't let the sick and distraught woman see her husband's badly mangled body. James Harris finds William Sherman with two gaping gashes in his skull and his left hand nearly severed. Like Drury, William's last act was probably raising his left arm to defend himself against a broadsword attack. Oh, and he has one gunshot wound in the chest. This violent attack on pro-slavery, though not slave-owning, settlers awakens free-soil anti-slavery Kansans to the idea that they can fight for their cause. Which is exactly what John Brown is going for. He wants the free-staters to fight fire with fire, not to compromise or capitulate. Through this attack, John catapults himself into a new realm. John is a Christian. John is a freedom fighter. John is a murderer. John is a saint or a terrorist. Which of those he is depends on whom you ask. Across the summer of 1856, at least 30 more people lose their lives as the fight between free soil and pro-slavery settlers becomes violent and deadly. Yeah, after John Brown's Potawatomi Creek Massacre, as these five deaths come to be known, both sides are ready to kill to defend their ideals. Kansas government officials struggle to prevent vigilante groups from forming and attacking one another. 
President Pierce finally intervenes in August and sends a new territorial governor, backed by a few hundred federal troops. John Geary, a veteran of the Mexican-American War and recent mayor of gold rush-booming San Francisco, arrives in September 1856. The impartial man's main goal is to hold a fair election in November. In his September 15th inaugural address as the new territorial governor, John, with his piercing eyes and epic beard, calls on Kansans to end the killing. Quote, Men of the North, men of the South, of the East and of the West, in Kansas, you and you alone have the remedy in your hands. Will you not suspend fratricidal strife? Will you not cease to regard each other as enemies and look upon one another as the children of a common mother and come and reason together? Between that moving speech, his no-nonsense personality, and hefty military backing, the new governor puts a stop, for now, to the infighting. More will be killed in the years ahead, but at least the worst of the bleeding has stopped in Kansas. It does so just in time for the presidential election of 1856. In this election, the Democrats abandon one-term Franklin, or as the U.S. Attorney General calls him, quote, that ninny, Frank Pierce, close quote. Instead, they run James Buchanan, the experienced statesman served as ambassador to England during this bleeding Kansas debacle, so his hands are figuratively clean. Republicans run the famous, now aging Western explorer and from the shadows Bear Flag Revolt leader, John the Pathfinder Fremont. The Republicans promise to contain the coercive slave power to the South. Politically adept James, however, plays on people's fears of Southern secession and campaigns on a pledge to save the Union above all else. This appeal works. He beats out the popular Pathfinder and secures the presidency. As soon as the election ends, James gets to work saving the Union. Yeah, he doesn't wait to be sworn in or even for Franklin to pack his bags and get out of the White House. The uneasy stalemate in Kansas has to be dealt with right away, and James knows of a Supreme Court case that could answer the question of slavery in U.S. territories. So, the president-elect, I can't stress that enough, this guy is not actually the president of the United States yet, jumps right into backdoor dealings with his friends on the Supreme Court. Let me give you a little background on the potentially slavery in the territories resolving case of Dred Scott v. Sanford. Back in the 1830s, an enslaved man named Dred Scott lived with his owner, Dr. John Emerson, in the free state of Illinois and the free territory of Wisconsin. But when the doc moved to Missouri and died, Dred, his wife, and two daughters passed into the ownership of Dr. John's widow, Irene Sanford Emerson. In 1846, Dred sued Irene for his freedom. He won. The St. Louis Circuit Court relied on a long-standing legal precedent that once a slave is free, he is always free, and ruled that Dredd had obtained free status while living in Illinois and Wisconsin. Nonetheless, Dredd's owner, Irene, appealed the verdict to the Missouri State Supreme Court. In 1852, that court made a purely political move and overturned the previous ruling and decades of legal precedents. With the desire for freedom for himself and his family and the knowledge that he had the law on his side, Dredd appealed to a federal district court in 1854. But by this time, Irene's brother, John Sanford, had control of Dredd and his family. In this federal case, known as Dredd Scott v. Sanford, District Court Judge Robert Wells upheld the Missouri Supreme Court ruling. So, in 1856, Dredd appealed his case to his last legal hope, the United States Supreme Court. 
And this is where meddling president-elect James Buchanan comes into the story. Since Dredd is suing for freedom based on the fact that he lived in free U.S. territories, James realizes that the outcome of Dred Scott v. Sanford could settle whether Congress or territorial legislatures can actually ban slavery in U.S. territories. But can one Supreme Court ruling really stop the bleeding in Kansas and settle the slavery expansion issue for good? Southern Democrat Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger Taney hopes to do all that and more. He's pretty sure he can address slavery in the territories and the political status of blacks in the United States and the rights of slave owners all in one fell swoop. With the president-elect's help, he just might pull it off. Pennsylvanian James coerces his fellow Keystone stater, Supreme Court Justice Robert Greer, to concur with the chief justice's ruling. Roger and James think that by getting a northerner to agree with a slavery upholding an expanding decision, it won't look like a sectional, politically partisan ruling. They also hope that maybe, just maybe, Northerners will go along with it and shut up once and for all about slavery. Not everyone on the court believes in the pipe dream. In 1857, Judge John Catron, who agrees with Rogers' arguments in the case, predicts that not only will the verdict piss off Northerners, it definitely won't settle the territorial slavery question. The justice flat out tells James that the court's ruling, quote, will settle nothing in my present opinion, close quote. Let's find out if he's right. Chief Justice Roger Taney reads the official 7-2 ruling of the court on March 6, 1857. SCOTUS upholds the federal district court's decision and rules that Dredd is a slave. The decision hangs on two basic tenets. One, Dredd is not a citizen and therefore can't sue in U.S. courts. He goes on to argue that no African-American, free or enslaved, is a citizen of the United States. According to Roger, blacks are, quote, so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, close quote. Now, if this is true, it's news to us all, since slaves have sued for and won their freedom based on the exact same arguments as dread over the past few decades. In other words, in addition to the straight-up racism, this ruling is crazy. But Roger is determined to rule on slavery in the territories, so, like an undergrad starting a term paper 24 hours before it's due, he pushes his poorly argued biased thesis forward. This brings us to point two. He says the Missouri Compromise of 1820, in episode 27, is unconstitutional because Congress doesn't have the power to determine the slave status of a territory. And to pour lemon juice in that huge paper cut, Roger finds that to prohibit slavery anywhere in the U.S. would deprive Americans of their property, i.e. slaves, without due process. It takes Roger, whose aging voice barely registers above a whisper, a couple of hours to read his decision and the nation is stunned by it. Well, the nation is, but not the newly sworn-in president, James Buchanan. He had a big role in bringing this court's ruling about and vows to, quote, cheerfully submit, close quote, to the court's decision. James then urges all, quote, good citizens, close quote, to do the same. That won't be a problem for Southerners who rejoice at the decision. One Virginia newspaper interprets the ruling as a guarantee that, quote, the territory of Kansas belongs alike to the man of Massachusetts and to the citizens of Louisiana or Virginia. 
It is the common domain of all the United States, and, as such, the people of each and every state have an irrefutable right to transfer themselves and their property into it. Close quote. But President Buchanan finds that most Northerners will not be submitting to anything, nor will Kansans. Instead of quieting the slavery controversy, as Roger and James hoped, the Dred Scott decision only ramps up the political brouhaha in the North and in Kansas. The pro-slavery territorial legislature, yeah, that same one elected by blatant voter fraud back in 1855, calls a state constitutional convention. Despite Roger's ruling, giving them the green light to blow off free soilers, the convention goers write one state constitution with slavery and one without. Then they present both versions to voters. Way to be fair and even-handed, guys. Oh, but there's a catch. The Constitution, supposedly without slavery, gives slave owners already in Kansas the right to keep their slaves and any of their slaves' children. It also doesn't prevent anyone from bringing enslaved men and women into Kansas. This Constitution basically gives slavery the garage door code instead of the key to the front door. Yeah, okay, so they are, in fact, blowing off free soilers and abolitionists. They were just hoping that these groups were stupid enough to fall for this fake free state constitution. And this is where the Kansas state constitution process hits a serious snag. It will take years to untangle this mess, and our old friend and popular sovereignty champion Stephen Douglas will break with President James Buchanan over it. But that's a story for another day we have a few other very important people to meet as we come to the cusp of the Civil War. History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Researching and writing, Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar. Production and sound design, Josh Beatty of JB Audio Design. Musical score, composed and performed by Greg Jackson and Diana Averill. For a bibliography of all primary and secondary sources consulted in writing this episode, visit historythatdoesntsuck.com. HTDS is supported by fans at patreon.com forward slash historythatdoesntsuck. Josh, CL, and I are beyond grateful to you kind souls providing funding to help us keep going. Thank you. And a special thanks to our patrons whose monthly gift puts them at producer status. Will Caldwell, Jason Karstens, Stephen Davis, Andrew Fortunati, Margaret Graves, Dex Jones, and John Leach. Join me in two weeks where I'd like to tell you a story. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers! 
and have a safe tomorrow.